Welcome to Mysterious Goings On. We're going to get right to the show after these messages. Hi, this is Sonia Iris Lozada, host of Poetic Resurrection, and you're listening to Mysterious Goings On with Alex Greenwood. absolute sucker for a small town murder no no wait <laughs> let me be very clear i don't want to actually um see anybody murdered but i'm always up for a small town murder mystery i've written one myself and i'll tell oh. you what though i did not write one i don't think quite as interesting and as acclaimed as this one and we're going to talk about it with the author we're of course talking about today the shingle weaver's picnic and I'm so excited to have the author of that book here, P.C. Smith. This is a book that Writer's Digest called a novel rife with delightfully rich sensory details. The Shingle Weaver's Picnic is a historical fiction story of innocence lost and the hideous violence lurking under the surface of small town life. P.C. Smith, welcome to Mysterious Goings On. Well, thanks for having me, Alex. Very nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you. You know, there's something else here about this book and uh but frankly uh, i think it's a sideline in a way but i'll just say it if it's okay um you this is your debut novel and right. you did did not have a start writing books at least until you were um let's say kind of a kind of a, a mature person fair enough yeah 85 is the number yes <laughs> <laughs> well i just try to be respectful <laughs> very nice thank you thank you well, here, I've got a quick question for you before we talk about the book itself. Sure. What took you so long? Well, life gets messy, you know, and I've always had the philosophy that things just sort of happen in their own good time. You know, if you leave the door open, something will walk in. So I did what, you know, all young women did at the time. I was married, had children, a husband, and volunteered, and did all those those wonderful things, and then... Um, just out of the blue, I ended up being a caretaker for my late husband for about eight years of Alzheimer's. And my doctor had said, you better find something to do at home that really takes you out of this world a little bit because it's going to be a tough ride. So I thought, you know, I'd like to take writing lessons online, but I didn't have a computer, nor did I know how to work one. So that was a challenge right there just buying the thing, let alone trying to work it. So I, I, I found uh, Gotham Writing School in New York. They have fantastic teachers. I mean, she knew just how to hold me in check and give me my corrections and all this stuff without squashing the spirit. So uh, it was a 750-word uh, homework assignment with this class that ended up being my book. <laughs> well, by the way, that's the first thing, right, is to have someone who's in a mentoring role to not extinguish that, that flicker that, that you're trying to, yeah. you know, make into a, a, a big fire. 
Yeah, that's very important. I don't care what kind of a, a well, I think there's an artist in everybody. And if, if it pops out and you get a chance to do something with it, uh, I don't care whether it's art or whether it's gardening or, you know, whatever, but uh, to have somebody encourage you is, is, is the answer because you, who knows how far you can go with that. Well, you know, that's one thing about this show too, is that uh, we are excited to feature artists at, or writers at any stage in their career. And we've had people who've been, I've had a New York Times bestseller or two, all the way to someone on a debut book. I've even had a couple of times some people who are just putting together their first book because I'm with you on that. I think it's important to encourage people. Um, my late grandfather encouraged me. He was a writer. Um, we, we need somebody in our lives to do that. And I think that's, yeah. that's wonderful that you found that. I, I was very, very fortunate. Of course, I also had a uh, a wonderful family. My my sister and brother and my mom were just you know right behind me, all the way. And then one of the odd things that happened with this book that I hadn't anticipated is I started hearing from oh women that were let's say on the edge of having the empty nest syndrome situation, and they were so thankful to read that I was at that age writing a book and they said our, our artistic chance hasn't passed us by and we really thought it had. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I thought, well, that was a nice little perk I didn't even realize I was coming up with. You know, you know, I've heard this many times from different in different ways throughout my life, though, that you you really almost never know the effect you have on other people. Yeah, true, true. It's a surprise. In this case, it was a very pleasant one. So all you ladies out there that think you've lost your time, your chance for your artistic uh, endeavors, don't give up. There's always time. Always time. It's always time. Well, let's talk about the Shingle Weaver's Picnic. Okay, I have to, I have to ask, though. Okay, you have, I think, seven great-grandchildren. And yes. this book focuses on the murder of a child. Um love to know just your emotional process with that was that difficult for you or w were you able to fully detach and just get the story on paper or or what well i think anytime you're thinking about reading about or watching a movie or something where a child is a, is a victim of something always sort of gets you down deep but since i had the ability to bring some good out of that being the writer it made it a little easier a little difficult yes yeah, I've I've had I been a father now for almost thirteen years, and it's it it's interesting how I personally changed the type of media I consumed, uh, yeah. especially when she when she was very little. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yes, I do. Yeah. I think that there's that certain that parental instinct kicked in with me, and and you know I just couldn't. But but it's like I just completed a serial that's got some of this these these kinds of overtones, so it it was got a little easier, but. Uh, maybe it's the fact that my daughter's becoming a teenager, and <laughs> it makes it well, that and, yeah, My mom always said uh, when I joined my grandkids so much, she says, Though, your grandchildren are your reward for not killing your kids when they were teenagers. So <laughs> it's really, really wonderful. I look at my grandkids and think, yeah, it's the truth. It's the truth. <laughs> okay, well, let's – how about this? I'm going to be quiet for a second. I just – would you mind just kind of giving listeners – um, not really your elevator spe speech or, or anything, but just you might tell them a little bit about the book and why they're going to want to get into it. Well, it's a story about a very turbulent time in our country. Most people think that this is the turbulent time, but there has always been a time of turbulence in history. And when I feel sort of lost, 
I think we sort of lost our innocence, uh, our trust in, in nations as the news became filled with violence and unbelievable cruelty, death, devastation, and the heartbreak of World War II. And of course, this was a young girl who sees the world uh, around her falling apart when this thing called war sweeps away all of her absolutes. She's also forced to see life through adult eyes long before you know her time uh, when a playmate and a friend is murdered and the act of the, um, the whole town just petrified the whole town and fear was just everywhere. And uh, she also had some personal loss. So it's a story of this young girl and how she looks at the world. It's just, it, there's a beautiful love story in this. It shows a close-knit family and how it was so important, which should be today as it was back then, that families you know, joined and got together and got through the depression only because they worked as a team and everybody contributed. And everyone even contributed to the war if they you know, weren't young enough to go. There was always scrap drives and there was working at the USO. And my grandmother used to take me with her up to the tallest building in Everett, which was the J.C. Penney building. And there was a little shack up there. And we would sit there for a couple hours once a week. And on the wall were uh, outlines, uh, black outlines of different airplanes. And when something would fly up there, we'd look through the binoculars and identify the airplane and call it in. And, you know, I was pretty young at the time, but, you know, even I felt that I was doing something for the war. So it was tearing people apart, but it was bringing people together. It was a very, very odd thing. Yeah, I, I recall a, 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 a war picture, a John Wayne war picture uh, in harm's way. And there's a scene oh. where there's a woman who's a spotter. She's got... Yeah. The, all yep. the different uh, silhouettes on the there, and she yep. they would fly over. She would use her binoculars, and then she would call it in. That's what we're talking about here, right? That's what we did, and uh, that was my grandmother's, you know, effort. Well, she also went to the Red Cross and folded bandages too. So everybody chipped in. It was just it was a everybody's war, and everybody felt responsible, and everybody tried to help. And it was really when you stop and look at it, except for the devastation of the war, it was really very of a mending and a, a wonderful time for the nation to pull together like that and, and get the feeling of what that's like, you know, we'll stick together and we'll win. And it was in everybody's heart. Yeah. It's uh, something I, not that we're here to talk about, you know, contemporary stuff. It's something I despair a little bit about these days. I just wonder what will it take these days to bring us all together? It seems we're so very splintered. Well, I, I haven't seen that kind of togetherness, uh, except for a very, very short time after 9-11, when all of a sudden everybody had a flag and, and uh, they felt very, very patriotic and they felt personally insulted about what had happened. That was the same feeling that we had during World War II, but it lasted, you know, for the full four years, where I think 9-1-1 just sort of is, well, the mass the mass pain of it all has sort of healed and, and out of sight. Yeah, but I guess one thing that doesn't heal is the death of a child, because of course it's it's a cliche, but it's true. Right. Um, right. We're not supposed. We're all supposed to uh, never. We're not supposed to bury our children. Uh, my grandmother, uh, who who was contemporaneous to your grandmother, lost uh, her oldest son. He was a veteran, but he wasn't killed in the war. He, he was killed in a car accident at home. But but she uh -huh. never got over. She never got over it. And of course, why should she get over it? But but to, th when it's a murder, though, 
which I think you're yeah. start talking about and illustrating in your book, yeah. you talk about taking things personally. Not only are people um, offended that such a thing happened in their midst, they're scared, right? There was a lot of fear. Uh, you know, in something in a small town, everybody knows everybody, and there's good and bad to that, let's face it. But there was a feeling of absolute unbelievability that anything like that happened in their town and was somebody among them that was capable of such a horrible thing then nobody ever locked their doors or anything but after this happened yeah doors were locked and they looked at strangers a little differently instead of you know inviting them in for a cup of coffee while they're waiting for a cab or whatever reason you would invite a stranger in no no more and it, it did affect everybody in a very fearful way unbelievable unbelievable you know, PC, I, I, I rarely get the chance to speak to someone who, who thinks along these lines about that. I, I'm curious, uh, do, we, do we as a society look back on a time that never really was? Or am I hearing correctly when you're saying, no, Alex, we, we had some of these times, but they were few and far between. We have these moments, as you mentioned, in World War II and uh, after 9-11. But, but was there really this, uh, it just seems that certain people look back and with nostalgia at certain eras. And I wonder if all of that's really 100% there, or is it, does, does, does hindsight kind of create this uh, reverse tunnel vision, so to speak? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. I think that might lie with the individual person. Um, I remember the war so well. I don't, I, have a, I don't know whether it's a curse or a blessing, but I've got a memory that I will do some or talk to my mom about something. She said, can't remember that you were years old. I said, well, I sure do. And I can remember uh, the conversations that my, my grandparents had when they first got notified that my uncle had been taken uh, at Batan Corregidor. And they, did, they didn't know whether he was alive or dead. He was just missing and there were no lists as of yet. And then when my uncle did come home, uh, I remember one evening sat and talked to my mom downstairs. She thought everyone was asleep upstairs. And I crept down the stairs and I listened uh, to him talk to mom about the situation and the horrors that he had seen, the blessing that he had for the Japanese women that smuggled in potatoes helped keep them alive. And he was taken out twice to be shot, but had a different armband than he should have. So they put him back in just stories of the war where you really got an idea of just how devastating it was. And a small child sits on those stairs and thinks, how can people be so mean to each other over land or whatever it is they're fighting over? How can you do that to another human being? And I think it changes who you are when you know that so young. Yeah, it's, and it's, I get, I think it's obviously good that he could speak about it. I mean, yeah. so often you hear, uh, I had an uncle who was at Iwo Jima and Jima and, oh. uh, was not something he wanted to chat about very often. But Tan though was probably the, the most gruesome, tragic, horrible, uh, moment in the entire Pacific theater. I would think throughout the war is that, would, would you agree? It was, it was pretty bad. Um, I had no idea the viciousness of some of the uh, soldiers in charge uh, of the group. There was like 40,000 that they marched all the way up uh, through the middle of um, Bataan and the, I'm out of Bataan. And the circumstances, most half of them were sick to start with, with diarrhea and starvation and just stumbling on the road got right. you shot. And 
to the very fact that my uncle even made it through to eventually be released was an absolute miracle. But you just don't, man's inhumanity to man doesn't come up and hit you in the face very often. But when it does, it certainly is an ugly picture. It is. Well, and so what we've seen here, though, uh, PC, is that you have brought a lot of this feeling and a lot, uh, particularly on the small town level, to this book. I, so let me ask you a little bit about, if you don't mind stepping back and asking, and here I'm going to ask the inevitable mechanics question, if that's okay. Sure. How do you write? Love to know. And did you, did you, you had the encouragement. I understand that with you, the Gotham folks. And, um, uh, but when it got down to it, as I say, pardon the, um, uh, slightly crass statement, but they ask me, people ask me all the time, how do you write? I say, well, I get my, my butt in the seat, first of all, um, and I write. So how did you do it? Do, do you, <laughs> did you have a, did you have a, uh, a routine or anything like that? Well, I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't think I, the most, the most miracle about this whole thing is that I, I just did it. I had no idea that I could. My teacher kept encouraging me. So one day she said, I've got a project for you, Patty. I said, okay, lay it on me. She said, you're going to write a book in 30 days. Oh, my goodness. I said, what? You've got to be kidding me. She said, no, I want you to know, and you just said it, you put your butt in the seat, you'll get words on the page. So I thought, Okay, she hasn't steered me wrong yet. There must be a method to this. So I had my daughter-in-law come in and, and do the things around the house that distract me. And I started my 30 days. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. She, I kept saying, I don't know, this just looks all. She said, quit being an editor. Just write. Just write. That was so hard. But I did. I kept writing and writing. Now I'm down to, I've got about, uh, well, about I've got there are about 30,000 pages to do here, and then I'm just about done. So I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and a couple days worth. And on that last day, I was just about finished. I thought, I am so tired. I've got to sit down and cross-eyed. So I sat in the little chair I've got in my writing room and just sort of stretched out for a little while. And I thought, all right, let's get back and see what we can do. When I got back to the computer, I'd forgotten to click on save. And the last days of my work was gone. So you want to see a grown woman cry. <laughs> so oh <my> <laughs> oh, no. put on your big girl pants. And I said, if you get back to it, you might remember what you wrote. So I did. I hopped back on and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I finished with two hours to spare. So that in itself was a challenge. And I thought, if I can do that, then I can do a book. So that was my beginning of knowing that this can be done. Okay, let me ask you, what, what's your favorite part of the process, though? Is there, a, I mean, that, that to me uh, is, is that, that whole force structure, oh my goodness, it's great that you could do that, but yeah. now that you're, you're not under that kind of a stricture, what is your favorite part of the process? My favorite part is I get sort of a feeling for a story. It's just sort of a general wave of something that would be interesting, you know, if it can be developed. And then I start with my characters. And I think I got this from when I was a little girl. My idea of a Saturday afternoon was a bag of popcorn and the movies. I just loved the silver screen. And I did that every Saturday that I could. And I get home and I tell mom all about the characters that I'd seen. And then I remember the day that I realized what characters were. I told her, you know Humphrey Bogart? I said, he's one person in the 
the treasure of the Sierra Madre. He's another person in the Falcon, the Maltese Falcon. And he's another person in the African Queen. That is a real character, Mom. And she says, you're right. So that sort of stuck with me. So what I do is I, I start with my characters. I can close my eyes and I picture a character that has some sort of uh, something that makes it stand out from the average person, maybe a walk, a, a look, or uh, just having a dynamic personality. And I sort of develop the character and then put him aside and then something else will come to mind. I'll develop that character and I'll put it aside. And then when I finally get the story, I pull them all out for auditions and pick my characters. <laughs> I know it's not really, but that's what I do. I don't think I've heard any, I've been, I've been doing this show for over five years. I don't think I've had anybody tell me they had an audition process for the characters like you just yeah. did. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's great. It's great. I love it. I think developing the characters is my passion. And I just, I know this is going to sound a little strange too, but when you really get into the writing, or you a writer, you know what I'm talking about. You get into the story and you get into the characters and something action is happening and the characters do this or they do that or they say this, they say that. I can't wait to get to the end of the chapter to see what they've done. They take <laughs> a life of their own. It's 100% true. Uh, I, I tell this to people all the time because this is I'm on uh, eighth book in my series of coming out in Halloween. And I've asked people ask me this who don't write. They just said, I, well, do you know what you're going to do? I said, no, I let the characters decide what we're going to do. I, I'm just yeah. along for the ride. That's the truth. It sounds very strange. But once it happens to you, then you understand it. But it, that's that is really neat. That's what keeps you going. I think I can't get to the next chapter. Let's see what's going to happen. Who's going to do what next? And yeah, it's great. It's great. I love it. Yeah. It, of course, I, I don't know. I don't know if I said this first, but I, I think I did, but maybe not. But I, I always say to people, writing is a lot. Being a writer is a lot like always having homework. And uh, <laughs> because we do. <laughs> I don't care if you just finished your latest manuscript. Like I just turned mine into my editor a couple of three weeks ago and uh, he's working on that. So I got antsy after about a week and I just started writing a new short story. I, you just always have something to download. But the interesting thing for me, uh, and I, I wonder if it's the same for you, is I, I just like I have an idea or I have a sentence or something that I really want. Speaking of auditioning, I audition sentences, I guess. I have a sentence that I really want a character to say, and then I can literally build something around that. It's it's so much fun. Well, I carry around a, one of those yellow legal pads, you know, mm. stick it in my purse, and I might be, you know, sitting doing something, and a certain phrase will come into mind, and I, I write away, I write it down. Not that it fits into any story or not, but it's almost like I'm, I'm collecting my own little writing encyclopedia, you know, and I've got all kinds of things written down by the time I finally get into the story. Yeah, I had a guest on a couple of times, actually, in the past few years. His name's Scott Mickelson. He's a musician. He's not a, a, an author. Well, he is. He's a children's book author, too. But anyway, he's mostly a musician. And I asked him, I said, your lyrics are so interesting. He says, yeah, I steal them from everyone. I'm like, oh, you mean other singers? He says, <laughs> oh, no. I'm just sitting somewhere, and I hear people talk, and I hear snippets of stuff that I think is just great. I just write it down. And and uh, he said he literally, for a couple of songs, cut them all up, threw them up in the air, and just drew them out of a hat to create a song. Oh my goodness, that sounds exciting! Oh, great! Oh, yeah. creativity is a good. It's a fun thing. It really is. It, it really is. It. Well, well uh, let me let me ask you the uh, the Shingle Weaver's Picnic. 
which looks yeah. fantastic. Beautiful cover. Lots of great five-star reviews. And, of course, I mentioned, uh, I think I mentioned at the beginning, folks, that uh, Writer's Digest wrote something very lovely things. Uh, what's, what's next for PC Smith? What are we going to see next? Well, I had people ask me, are you going to do a sequel? And I thought, gee, I think, I think that takes a little more experience and talent than I have at this point in my career because I, I can't see doing a better job on these characters than I did in the first. And to drag them out there, just like a movie, like uh, oh, uh, something number two, and it's not anything like the first one. And the characters aren't either. So I thought, I'm going to let this stand on its own. But my second book, I'm getting the feeling, is going to be written in Montana because that's where I have a second home. And uh, there are characters there by the dozens. And I've uh, written down a lot of them. And I think I could come up with a really good sort of a World War II spy story. Ooh. Yeah. So that's where I'm going right now. That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're not in Montana, you're in? I live in uh, Monterey, Central California, uh, right near Carmel by the sea. And uh, I had a stained glass studio there for 15 years. And uh, I retired and started um, doing writing. So I'm there. Oh, I used to be just half and half, six months, six months up there. But I tell you, Montana is so beautiful. And they talk about big sky country. It is huge. So my husband and I are spending a little more time in Montana, but we have this darling little cabin and it's got a little loft and upstairs is my writing room. Get in my pink fuzzy slippers in the morning with a big roaring fire and I can write all day. Oh, that sounds like heaven. Well, okay, here's here's a curveball for you. You let me know if somebody's asked you this one before. All right, you, you are a grandmother of four and a great-grandmother of seven. There's got to be another writer in there somewhere. Uh, no, but there's a lot of, uh, talent. there's, there's musical talent. I have a, uh, my uncle who was the Marine Corps, uh, in the Marine Corps that was the prisoner. He played a clarinet like, oh, you couldn't believe. He was just wonderful. He was my hero when I was a little girl. And I have a grandson that writes music, that sculpts, that paints. Uh, and then when he got up here to, for a visit, he found what the remnants of my stained glass studio downstairs, put it all together, and now he's a stained glass artist doing better work than I ever did at my best. So, <laughs> you know, we've got some talent rolling around, but nobody's done any actual writing. I think there's some potential out there, but they haven't gotten that spot where somebody let them know that they could do it. You know, that's the big drawback when you want to be a writer. You know, you're putting everything down. It's very personal. There's your baby out there on paper, but I don't think I can do it. Well, it takes a lot to make people believe, yes, you can. You know, you can do it. Anyone can do it. Put your heart on it. Don't worry about it. Well, that's so true. And the good news for your grandchildren is that they have until at least they're 85. They have until what? Until they're at least 85. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Let's see. Well, my grandkids are mainly in their 30s. My kids are in their 60s, and my uh, great-grandchildren are the ones that are now in babies or two or three or something like that. So I've got a wide variety in my family. I just love it. Just yeah, love you it. just never – well, you never know. Like I said, my grandfather, he wrote for 50 years. He wrote Westerns and uh, uh, wonderful. I'm sorry? I said Lash LaRue-type movies. I mean – Oh, really- my gosh, Yes. <laughs> 
I'll tell you what, PC. He he started in the late '40s in the pulps. I've got some of the old pulp fiction magazines oh, he wrote really? for. Yeah, and uh, he actually though became kind of a contemporary of Charles Portis, who wrote True Grit. He knew Charlie, and oh uh, goodness. Yeah, he never quite had that success, but he wrote really nice books. And anyway, but he 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 encouraged me mightily, and I I just thought he was just the most interesting guy ever, and World War II veteran, the whole thing. So anyway, I I, I you know what you'll never you may, you never know one of your descendants out there may uh, pick up your book someday and say, uh, hmm, maybe I should well, try I this. Hope so. Uh, I was very very flattered when my brother. Uh, bought the book and read it because he's a he's a historical nut. He loves those books that are four inches thick, all about Lincoln and everything Lincoln ever said, did, or breathed, and he, he just loves that. So for him to pick up my book and say, "Gee, Patty, that was really good," I thought, "Whoa, that's probably the best review I got." Yeah, th- th- isn't that wonderful? When, when especially when it's not like you 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 gave a copy, you just found out they bought it and read it and liked it. Yeah. It's a it's the ultimate, particularly, particularly, I don't know about you, but particularly for me, the people who are not typical readers, I have a friend or two who are not big readers, yeah, but yeah, yeah. And, I, yeah, and I've got one friend, he's an architect. He doesn't have a lot of time for pleasure reading, but he says, you know, whenever, whenever I need to turn off my architect brain, I pick up one of your, your mysteries. And it, that just makes my year. Perfect. Doesn't it though? Oh, that, you know, that is cool. Yes. My brother bought 11 books and he gave them out to family members. So I think he liked. What a great brother. What a great brother. Uh, yeah, well, yes. and, and apparently it's a great book. Uh, we're, we're talking with PC Smith. She is um, the author of The Shingle Weaver's Picnic. It's her debut novel. Uh, and she's fine with saying it. She's 85 years old and it's going to be working on some new stuff. Um, so tell you what, PC Smith, how do people uh, learn more about your work? Where do they go? Uh, I have a website. Can you believe that? <laughs> I was going to be one of those uh, senior citizens. I wasn't going to have a computer till I needed one. I wasn't going to have a laptop for crying out loud till I found out how easy it was to sit on the sofa. And then I wasn't going to have a phone that had an IQ higher than mine. I was drawing a lot. <laughs> now I have a big one. So, yes, now I have a website, too, thanks to my grandchildren. So it uh, the website is author, small letters, pcsmiths.com and um, you can go there and there's um, some copies of some of my interviews there's uh, information about me or where to get the book you know Amazon, Barnes and Noble uh, it also comes out in Kindle so yeah if you go there you can find out anything we didn't discuss today well I'll tell you what folks I think you should and I'll be adding this one I have this one by the way it's on my stack and I'm looking forward to it and reviewing it down the road PC Smith I have uh, not only enjoyed meeting you, I uh, feel that I have definitely learned some things and I'm excited for you. You're very inspirational and I really appreciate you joining us here on Mysterious Goings On. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. It's been great talking to you and you were my first Zoom, so I will probably never forget this interview. Thanks so much for listening to Mysterious Goings On. Don't forget we have a complete archive of all of our interviews, monologues, updates, live readings, dead readings. All of that stuff is available at mgopod.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to us so you never miss an episode. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the usual suspects. Please join us there. Again, don't forget, mgopod.com also has links where to find me on social media and how to get in touch in case you want to be a guest here on the show. 
Well, I think it's time that I move on for this week, but until next time, keep reading.